Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. We have another blue report. This time we're discussing the releases during the month of May. Uh, but before we get started with that conversation, I just want to note we're days away from the premiere of Movie Geek Yearbook, our brand new series. So just a reminder, what what is the date? June 1st. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make sure you tune in to our podcast to hear that, or you could subscribe to the the standalone Movie Geek Yearbook podcast on all the podcast platforms, whatever you use. You'll hear it both on Movie Geeks United and as a standalone podcast on its own. So check that out and visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. But enough about that. Let's get to the blue. And just to reiterate, I don't know if I've ever revealed this to people. I never know the movies that you're going to bring up. I, I go into this cold, so I don't do any kind of advanced, uh, because that's your job, <laughs> advanced <laughs> research. So I'm like I'm like Kreskin the Magnificent in all of this. Uh, your 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 uh, uh, calendar for the month of May is hermetically sealed, seen by no one but you. So I <laughs> just want to make that clear. Yeah, that's that's the way we've been doing it for a long time. Yep. Um. But it seems to work out well, I think. I love uh, getting your honest and raw reactions to some of these titles. <laughs> it's always a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I don't want it to be rehearsed. And a lot of, but honestly, I might, I might benefit from actually uh, reviewing it ahead of time because uh, so many of the movies I, I have zero to say about, <laughs> except you know a conversation that turns to another movie, completely different movie. But anyway. Let's do it. Let's see what we got in store this month. Well, there's a, as usual, Kino is just pumping out the titles. Ton of stuff from Kino during the month of May. Uh, we'll start with one that I actually do like. I have a fondness for this one. A Thousand Clowns, starring Jason Roberts and Barbara Harris. And this is about a guy who, uh, he's the head writer of a TV show called Chuckles the Chipmunk Show, and he decides to quit his job and Retreat to his cluttered Manhattan apartment, and this is written by the playwright Herb Gardner. I think um, I think it may have been a play before, but it's like I said, Jason Roberts and Barry Gordon is also in this. Martin Balsam, Gene Sachs, William Daniels, and features some terrific editing by Ralph Rosenblum, who would later mm. go on to cut a lot of stuff for Woody Allen. He did uh, Annie Hall, most famously, Take the Money and Run, and he did uh, The Producers. Yeah. Uh, I've got, so, um, I've got a gub. A gub? No, that's an N. That's an N. A gun. Gun. <laughs> <laughs> Who, uh, what, well, year, what year was this movie? 1965, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a sweet little movie. It really is about uh, connecting to what's important in one's life. And so I wanted to mention that A Thousand Clowns is a is a pr- pretty well done movie. I'm glad that, that it's um, seeing the light of day because it's kind of had shabby treatment on home video. A uh, couple other keynotes. Uh, things that were released on May 5th. We have Brighton Rock with Richard Attenborough, uh, the uh, rather an Inspector Call starring Alistair Sim. We have um, two of their titles uh, in their Forbidden Fruit collection, uh, Volume 4, they're up to now. These are those films that that they were made in the 30s, kind of um, like um, Reefer, Reefer Madness is a good example, you know, where they were the films about the evils of certain things that were frowned upon in society at the time. And um, uh, these two titles are Marijuana 
and narcotic. <laughs> yeah. With these two, uh, that's, two so fu- that's so funny to. That's so funny when you when you look back through history and see the stuff that was very scandalized at the time. Oh uh, yeah, like marijuana. Like marijuana was going to be the 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 detriment of society at large. Mm-hmm. There was such hysteria that they tried to drum up over it. I thought when you said forbidden fruits, I, see, I always equate that when you're talking about early movies like from the 30s or uh, with the um, with the co- with the code with the movies that kind of and they're usually stuff like Gene Harlow movies where they play real real harlots that, mm-hmm. that, that use men and use sex and I'm pregnant and that kind of thing. Uh, I always equate that genre of movies with that. And I love a lot of those movies. I've seen several of those. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about one of those. Uh, you're scooping me, actually. We're going to oh. talk about one of those here in just a little bit that uh, Warner Archive has... I repeat, I movies. have not looked at these releases in advance. I'm telling you, Kreskin, man. <laughs> You've always got that foresight, I'm telling you. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, another one of these collections, Forbidden Fruit, Volume 5, contains The Child Bride and Tomorrow's Children, a drama of human sterilization is how it's billed. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> these are all made in the 30s. They're, they're worth seeing as curios. Yeah, but, they are curios. And I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, like, <clears throat> in some of them, if they play more like the instructional uh, films – like uh, you know, like you see in Kentucky Fried Movie, the whole zinc oxide and you, and, you know, like <laughs> like if there's an instructor in front of a chalkboard in certain moments of the movie. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I think they would play better with an audience. I think if you could get a large group of people together in the right frame of mind, I think that's the best way to view these. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if it's nothing but a, a group of friends. Um, but anyway, here's one that might be of interest to mention. Uh, Me and Natalie from 1969. Uh, and why is this important? It's because the it's the debut of Al Pacino. Mm. Along, he stars along with Patty Duke, James Fier, uh, Ferentino, sorry, and Martin Balsam again, and Elsa Lanchester. And uh, like so I said, 69, right? It was the story of a young girl struggling to gain independence. And it also has Nancy Marchand in it, who would later go on to play Ma Soprano. Ah, uh, yes. Here's a qu- so, here's a trivia question. Patty Duke's relation and and sixty nine is right in there with the uh, with the Manson thing. Mmm. I'm not sure I know the tie-in. I hate to say. Before they moved into Cielo Drive, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski were were renting uh, Patty Duke's house. And uh, they wanted to uh, to buy it, uh, but then they changed their mind for whatever reason and chose Cielo. Hmm. I that's something I didn't know, I, and I don't know how that that factoid has escaped me all these years because I'm usually up on on top of all that type of stuff. See, there's a reason why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> see, you are contributing. I just uh, inject the occasional true crime anecdote, and all is well. <laughs> uh, well, Arrow is releasing White Fire, which is a 1985 film starring Robert Genty and Fred Williamson, mm-hmm. and it's basically about a a brother and sister who are employees at a diamond mine shaft in the desert, and 
they stumble upon the discovery of a legendary diamond called the White Fire, and anyway, some villains are after this diamond as well. It's one of those um, mid-80, 1985 was, it was the release date on this action, mid-80s action type thing. So anyway, but Arrow Video has released this. It's one of their May releases. I'm not really familiar with this title, but I just wanted to put it out there for people who are. And uh, But I will mention this one. This is a one that I am uh, – one of my favorite releases of the month. Uh, this one's from Criterion, and they have issued the uh, the box set, Eric Romer's Six Moral Tales. Mm. Uh, these were previously, of course, issued on DVD back in the mid-2000s, but they finally upgraded graded them to Blu-ray in this beautiful box set. Uh, it's fantastic. It has all of the um, – the six moral tales that Eric Romer made from 1963 to 1972, and these films have been a lot of um, have uh, been inspiring to a lot of filmmakers, a lot of indie filmmakers. Uh, they're very dialogue-driven films, and the plot on all of these films is is pretty much the same thing, where uh, a man is married but or in a relationship with somebody, and he's tempted, but then he eventually goes back to the the first woman uh before it's all over but how he gets there and gets back to where he started is is the what makes the movies interesting and how he's tempted and all of wow. this and uh these films are all very philosophical it's um, one of them called eyes wide shut uh <laughs> well there's definitely uh there's this this these films definitely have something in um uh i would say there's there is some commonality there on some level but uh, I think it's Claire's Knee. I believe that's yes. the one that uh, was remade by um, uh, Chris Rock. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the yeah, he, <laughs> no, he, he turned he, it into a, no. He remade Cleo from nine from five to seven, or that that was he his. I think I love my wife, and that was from Cleo f- f- nine nine five to seven. Or okay, uh, but I did see Claire's Knee. I did see that, and I uh-huh. I enjoyed it. It was a lovely little movie. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it is. It is. I. Uh, it was on the Criterion Channel, and I checked it out. And then I checked out that Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion from 1970, mm-hmm. the Italian dirty cop movie. That's great. Oh, freaking loves that. I know he always references that. Uh, he he did. I think when he was on our show, and I've yeah. heard him in many interviews. He's always bringing that up, and I, it's a blind spot for me. I need to see that so bad. It's very good, and man, that Morricone score—it's one of those Looney Tunes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where they there's—it sounds like a kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those. Interesting. I gotta, I gotta move that up the list. I gotta see that. But yeah, this, uh, this Six Moral Tales is pretty, pretty impressive what they've done with this packaging, and it comes with a nice little book. And um, and who did I it? I know these were who, who came very out inspiring. It? What's that? Uh, it's Criterion. Oh, it's Criterion. Well, wow. okay. Yeah, it's one of theirs. I know these were very in, uh, very in uh, instrumental, I guess, in Richard Linklater's. You know, he's he's very inspired with his Before trilogy by these films. I think so uh, with the talking nature and how it conveys so much. But anyway, the films are The Bakery Girl of Monsu, Suzanne's Career, My Night at Mods, La Collection Use, Claire's Knee, and Love in the Afternoon. Those are the films, and there are a lot of extras here, a lot of interviews. And um, like I said, the booklet has essays by Jeff Andrew, 
Philip Lopet, Kent Jones, Molly Haskell, and Armand White. Ooh. <laughs> mm. I, I, I'm sure the summary of his remarks has something to do with you. none of you know anything uh, about, about what you're saying. The, by the way, I just looked it up. Uh, it was uh, I, Chris Rock's I Think I Love My Wife was inspired. It's a remake of the film Chloe in the Afternoon by Romer. That's it. Chloe in the Afternoon. That's the one I'm – yep. Uh, I, I had it confused with Love in the Afternoon. That's the one I was thinking about for some reason. But anyway, well, I was in the ballpark, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we, we both were dancing around it. <laughs> uh, so we'll move to May 12th and another Criterion release and this is one we, you know you and I are always talking about the old laser discs that Criterion used to put out back in the, the 90s and the uh, maybe late 80s and all through the 90s and this is one of those The Great Escape yes um, they uh, they did a, a terrific job on that back when it was uh, very all I guess virtually impossible to see it in its uh, correct aspect ratio and it was put out in widescreen on laserdisc but it's never been a Criterion title since the laserdisc days until now and they've done a, a terrific job putting this as making this part of the Criterion collection it's got a new 4K transfer. Um, a 5.1 surround sound DTS master audio soundtrack, two commentaries, one from 91 featuring the original director, John Sturges, and composer Elmer Bernstein. Mm. And uh, there's another one from 2003 that features, I guess these are archived interviews that were cut together, James Coburn, James Garner, and Donald Pleasance because he was deceased by 2003, so I can't imagine he would be giving a new commentary at that point. Um <laughs> The evil has escaped. You don't understand. There was nothing in his eyes, nothing. I shot him six times. That was the boogeyman, wasn't it? Yes. As a matter of fact, it was. <laughs> One of the great light readings. Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, it has a four-part 2001 documentary as well. And uh, a couple other featurettes and documentaries and uh, Return to the Great Escape, a 1993 program. I guess this was from the original Laserdisc, which features interviews with Coburn Garner and David McCallum and Judd Taylor. Mm. So um, nice essay booklet with that as well. So the Great Escape has returned to the Criterion Collection. Nice. And um, the 1999 horror film Idle Hands has been issued – I think that's part of the uh, shout, yeah, shout Factory is responsible for that one. Mm. And we were talking about pre-code films. Well, we teased about that earlier. Well, here we go. Uh, Warner Archive has issued The Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. And this, of course, stars Lionel Atwill, Faye Ray, and Frank McHugh, directed by Michael Curtiz. Mm. And this was uh, – this is interesting on several reasons. Uh, one is that it was filmed in the early two-color technicolor process. Uh, it was considered a lost film for decades until a well-worn print was discovered in the 1970s, early 1970s. Uh, it has now gotten a new meticulous restoration that's presented on the new Blu-ray 
courtesy of the folks at Warner Archive. And this was done by the UCLA Film and Television Archive and the Film Foundation in association with Warner Brothers Entertainment. And the funding was provided by the George Lucas Family Foundation. So George is doing something great with those, uh, those nice. Star Wars dollars. Uh, restoring films, uh, hats off to him for that one. So, anyway, uh, the mystery of the wax museum. I know Pauline Kael was always quoted. Uh, it's a quote from her on the back, and I remember reading reading her review at some point. A marvelously grisly chiller, she said. Mm. So, anyway, what, this uh, was in the thirties. Yeah, nineteen thirty-three. Right on the cusp of the. I think the uh, the code broke uh, about nineteen thirty-four is when they instated the code, I believe. Uh-huh. So the year before. The Hayes thing. Yes. So it was the year before. So it's a pretty dark film. Uh, Not technically dark, but, you know, a dark material. I don't don't know if I've uh, recommended this on the show before or not, but there's a 13-part miniseries on YouTube, and it originated from from a 1980 BBC uh, documentary series called Hollywood. It's narrated by James Mason. It's about the history of the silent film. And I'm telling you, it is fantastic. I mean, we talk a lot on the show about wanting to get interviews with uh, the, the people who really were meaningful for the history of film before they passed to, to try to get their testimonies on record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just replete with that. It, uh, the people that were involved in silent films and worked alongside people like Buster Keaton and D.W. Griffith and... and uh, the Douglas Fairbanks and all of that. So it's, uh, and I learned a, quite a lot. It's, it's very, uh, in depth about the history of the silent film industry, uh, the birth of Hollywood, um, the scandals that rocked that period of time, Fatty Arbuckle among them, which kind of led to, um, the Hayes code, um, because they wanted to get the, get the, uh, the degenerates uh, out of Hollywood. <laughs> mm-hmm. They did a, such a great job on that. Uh, so it, I would highly recommend it. Just look it up. Hollywood on YouTube, 13 episodes. It's from Kevin Brownlow, who oh, is yeah. one of the preeminent authorities on silent film. Uh, look that up. It, it is fantastic. Really, it is. I remember you mentioning that in a private conversation we had, and I, I had that on my radar. I still haven't gotten around to it, so I'm going to have to make that a priority as well. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, so another keynote release would be Film Noir, The Dark Side of Cinema 2, and this features the following titles, The Female Animal, The Price of Fear, and Thunder on the Hill. These are made between the years of 1951 and 1958. Mm. Uh, this is, like I said, volume two of their film noir series. So uh, keep doing it. Keep releasing that stuff. I love, I love those noirs. Oh yeah, I do too. Definitely. A um, couple of uh, Mill Creek releases. These are <laughs> the type of fare that you would find in the middle of the night on Showtime and Cinemax. We talk about them often. The Dallas Connection is one of them, uh, directed by Christian Drew Sedaris and produced oh. by. Andy Sedaris, uh, so I think that there must be a family connection there. The son Uh, of Sedaris (laughs) (laughs) carries on his father's legacy of of big tits and bigger guns. (laughs) Julie Strain and Bruce Penhall are the stars of the Dallas Connection. Mm. And, um, you know, that was, 
one of their like I said Mill Creek is the uh, the distributor on that, and Enemy Gold is another one, also directed by Christian Andrew Sedaris. So I'm thinking, thinking there's a film, oh, yeah. uh, family I'm, connection. I'm sure there is. So, so Howl's Moving Castle has been reissued, the uh, classic animated film from 2004 that's been reissued by Shout Factory for their G Kids label. They've been doing a great job putting out some of these great Japanime films from the 2000s and 90s and they're continuing on and that's another one with tons of extra features and so we have that and uh the man from alamo and they came to kadura that's a two a twofer from 1953 and 1959 and this is another mill creek release and then we have the barbara stanwick collection from kino lorber which contains Interns Can't Take Money, The Great Man's Lady, and The Bride Wore Boots. These are from 1937 and 1946. Another Warner Archive release is 1965 film directed by Robert Mulligan. Um, We're talking about Inside Daisy Clover starring Natalie Wood and Christopher Plummer. Did you watch the documentary that her daughter made on her? I was just going to mention that. Yes, I did. And I was actually, I enjoyed it much more than I expected to. I know it's Laurent Bootsiro, and we're always referencing yeah. him and talking about his stuff is sometimes a little on the surfacey side, and it's always usually sanctioned by the, uh, the, the subjects. The subject themselves are either their family, so there's usually not much room for anything salacious or anything yeah. like that. But, uh, I thought it was pretty pretty good. Uh, I thought the Robert Wagner stuff was a little mm, – they tried to gloss over that maybe a little bit. I heard some complaints from people who were saying that they thought that it didn't really give a fair shake at what really went down in their relationship. But I don't guess that's what the movie was really about. And but I, Well, what surprised me is that they – I mean they did really address the, the, the her death. And yes. He, he sat there and he told the details that he, he said that he's told before and he recalls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, no one is ever going to know. Because yeah. The only two people that know are Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if what Robert Wagner says is true, then the only person that knows is Natalie Wood. <laughs> so, yes. uh, uh, I, I mean, I could buy what he says. I mean, some things just happen. I mean, not yeah. everything has a conspiracy behind it. Some things just, you know, shit happens sometimes. But I thought that that movie, the documentary was very... Very moving, very personal. It gave a great insight mm-hmm. into who she was as yes. a, as a creative person and as a mother, family person. And uh, Inside Daisy Clover, I know it gets a bad rap, but and it's not quite a great movie. But man, that that scene in that recording booth—it's just—and they highlighted in this documentary. It's just a phenomenal scene. You're like, God, where did that come from in the midst of this movie? It's like a real showpiece that one sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not my. I've seen it before, and I remember having kind of a tepid reception to it. Um, you know, of course, it's produced by Alan Pecula, yeah. and he he and Mulligan had a partnership at that point before Pecula went on to make films of his own. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, nicely photographed. They, 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 technically, it's it's a a good looking film, but I just felt um, a little cold uh, for the most part. Yeah, with it. Yeah. But uh, I'd like – I believe I'm going to go back and revisit it for sure, and uh, maybe I'll have a, a different take on it this time around. Plus, it sounds like the title of a porn movie. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
But uh, yeah, the documentary was interesting in that uh, I didn't realize she was as hands-on with her career as she was, but she was very um, just not willing to just take a part for the sake of grabbing a paycheck, which I found very admirable. Um, she was she, yeah. she was more than than that. Yeah, she navigated that whole uh, child actress to adult pretty well. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I did. Um, I did enjoy it. I was like you. I was I was very moved, and uh, it was it was better than it had any right to be, or that I expected it to be. So yeah, um, there are a couple extras on the Inside Daisy Clover Blu-ray. There's a classic cartoon called War and Pieces, and a theatrical trailer. So there we go. We have a a few a few extras. So. Um, Anyway, the 1933 film, The Gordon of Ghost City. This is a VCI title, a Western title. Um, Buck, uh, yeah, Buck Gordon of Jones Ghost City. Not really um, – Buck Jones, I'm sorry, is the actor. Gordon of Ghost City, I'll get it right. Uh, it's one of those Westerns that were atypical of its time, I think, from what I'm seeing here. But uh, anyway, VCI occasionally will re- release stuff, and they put out that as well as Dynamo. A um, this is uh, one of those films with Bruce Lai. You remember after Bruce Lee died, they brought out uh, this actor's Lai. And uh, did they really? Yeah, well, they did. I remember as a kid seeing his films in uh, being advertised at our local theater. They would play for about a week. And uh, there was actually a movie where he made – he actually played – it was a biopic of Bruce Lee. It was called The Man, The Myth or something like that. But uh, I know Tarantino's a big fan of Bruce Lee. He, he says in some ways he thinks Bruce Lee is better than Bruce Lee. So oh, of course he does. Yeah, Bruce, man, those, those deep thinkers in Hollywood. Let's, let's get this <laughs> Bruce Lee. Uh, I, I still – like I remember watching Game of Death a few years ago. Uh-huh. And he had passed – uh, before they were finished shooting about five years I yeah think. and the uh man the steps they took to kind of manipulate those scenes that he was in that weren't quite finished or i mean at one point I, I, how long has it been since you've seen it oh it's been a long time okay long time you know those things they're on like they're like ping pong paddles but they're pictures of people that you put in front of your face there's yeah. act- actually a scene where they do that with the actor playing, standing in for Bruce Lee. And, <laughs> and you could see him holding the paddle. It is the. I'm, did they really think they could get away with this? I mean, what is this? Oh, jeez. Oh, I got to go back and watch that, man. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid. I, I don't think I've seen it since I was probably in my early teens, so I probably didn't pick up on that. But good Lord. Man. Mm mm mm. And a gig young is in that too, right? I think that was his last film. Mm. I think I think so. Yeah, I think he he killed his wife and then himself shortly there thereafter. Yeah. Uh, well, as you do. Yeah. Uh, oof. Scary stuff. Yeah. The funny story about uh, Gig Young is that he was originally, you know, he had the uh, the part that went to Gene Wilder, of course, in Blazing Saddles, and he. Showed up to work for the first day, and he was. They said, "Boy, he's doing a good job playing a drunk. Boy, he's he, he's yeah. play, he's doing such a good job." And then, as the day wore on, he he finally got to the point where he couldn't even 
talk and he passed out on set and Mel Brooks said I don't think he's playing he's he's really sauced and they they fired him mm. and that's how Gene Wilder got the part so troubled man but boy could he when he was on, when he was on he was he was great in that uh, the, the they shoot horses don't they he won the supporting actor Oscar for that he's fantastic in that yeah Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, we'll move on to May 19th, and we have a trio of Tom Cruise films that are, I guess these were timed to be, to release with the, um, what was supposed to be the release date of the new Top Gun film, but obviously that's been moved. So, they went on with their release plans anyway. Um, these are all 4K releases, Top Gun, War of the Worlds, and Days of Thunder, and Days of Thunder has simultaneously been released as one of the Paramount Presents titles for their new line of studio titles where they dip into the vaults and have new conversations with uh, the filmmakers or you know put some new extras, new transfers. In this case, it's a Jerry Bruckheimer. Obviously, we're not going to get a new conversation with Tony Scott, but we have a new conversation with Jerry Bruckheimer on Days of Thunder and then the isolated score from the film. So, um, anyway, this is title number five in the Paramount Presents line. Mm, and you just watched it for the first time. I did. I missed it when it originally came out. I, I'm not, it was filmed literally 25 minutes from where I live. And I remember it was a big, big deal uh, when they filmed it here. Um, Tom Cruise... There was, uh, <laughs> I, I know there was a reporter who was sent out in his uh, assignment was to get an interview with Tom Cruise, and, and that was his entire assignment for the day. And he tried and he tried, and it never happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he had to actually go back and write a report on how he couldn't get an interview with Tom Cruise because they didn't have anything else to run or something like that. It was, yeah, uh, those are always entertaining articles. I think, I think, oh, yeah. I think there was some kind of like Esquire piece or something about how this guy only spent five minutes with. De Niro. Oh yeah. And so that for, formed the basis of what his finished article was. Yeah, Days <laughs> of Thunder. I remember seeing that on opening day and and being disappointed because it was Cruz's follow up to Born on the Fourth of July, oh, which yeah. I was so overwhelmed with. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, but the movie has its place. The movie has its big fans. It's a it's a big stupid movie. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, it, it basically, uh, Roger Ebert, I went back and reread his review uh, after I watched it the other night, and he nails it. He says it's basically Top Gun, where they just you know, take the, the aspect of the, the military and the, him being a, a fighter pilot. They take that and just swap out uh, the fact that he's a NASCAR racer or whatever. And, yeah, uh, coal, just, coal trickle. Yeah, riding his motorcycle through the fog, and, you yep. know and the, that whole glossy, kind of blear, blurry uh, tobacco colors that Tony Scott was known for, and it's just you know, it's a fun, it's a fun little movie, and the ridiculousness of the wheelchair race through the hospital corridors <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah, and then you've got the uh, the. The two rivals who you know are going to become friends, just like yeah. Top Gun, and, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's going to win one for the for the former foe turned uh, turned friend. He's going to win one for him at the end, and 
That's you know, it's, it is. It's the same template all over again. Uh, I guess the saddest part of it, though, is that this is what Robert Town was doing in 1990. <laughs> so, I tell you what, though, man. I mean, uh, Tom Cruise kept him employed. I mean, he did. You know, he would keep him employed for rewrites and that kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He worked with him quite a bit there for a while. Yep. Well, anyway, Top Gun, what more can I say about that? I, there's nothing else I can say about it. Uh, it's been talked to death. But this 4K transfer does look good. If you're a if you're a fan of Top Gun, it's never looked better, never sounded better. Some new extras here. There's uh, the legacy of Top Gun. And there's On Your Six, 30 Years of Top Gun, which was on a previous edition. The commentary by fil- filmmakers and naval experts. And, and the Blu-ray has all of the original uh, extras that were on previous editions. Uh, they're all there, including the six-part oh, documentary. I wonder so, if yeah. a movie can do that anymore, because I, I guarantee you that Top Gun, the recruitment for the Air Force probably went through the roof after that movie came out. I wonder if movies have that kind of power anymore. Yeah, I, I just don't think they do. I think that uh, everybody is splintered. They're watching habits and all of that have been splintered in so many different directions i just don't think that that movies just don't dominate the way they dominated the pop culture at a at a time in the past the other title of course war of the worlds uh the his second collaboration with steven spielberg i believe and uh, this has all the carryover extras from the previous edition on the the extra blu-ray that comes with it and and it has the uh the 4k feature uh, film by itself um you know i thought war of the worlds was okay um, yeah it's okay it's not great it's i think not I, I think my, i think minority report is borderline great and i i think i think war of the worlds is fine yeah yeah i thought minority report had some flaws uh, there were some storytelling flaws that i uh had issue with but uh, it has its moments it's it's okay. I just think Minority Report is just a, a, a brilliant hybrid of of uh, of science fiction and film noir. I just mm-hmm. thought uh, Spielberg is the great the greatest kind. You know how uh, you watch comedians or actors and they're terrific mimics. So I feel mm-hmm. that way about Spielberg when it comes to other filmmakers or genres. Like if he wants to evoke. A certain filmmaker like he did with Costa Gravis and um, Munich or uh, Kubrick and AI, he he's he has an uncanny ability to do that, and, mm-hmm. and 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 his melding of those two genres in Minority Report uh, felt very organic and convincing to me. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's an excellent point. Yeah, and I totally agree. Well, the other uh, Paramount Presents title that I'm going to bring up is uh, Flashdance. That uh-huh. was the fourth the fourth title in their series. They've done five. They've released five so far, and um, this was four. And, of course, Days of Thunder was number five. And this has a new Adrian Lyne filmmaker focus where he does a little uh, take on uh, what he feels about Flashdance oh. in this day and age. I and, thought you were about to say he does his own, uh, his own uh, version of the uh... – the dance sequence with the water. <laughs> that would be interesting <laughs> to see. Yeah. It also has the featurettes from the original previous edition, the look of Flashdance, releasing the Flashdance phenomenon and the theatrical trailer. None of the music videos are on here, but uh, huh. I don't know. Another, um, another <clears throat> ridiculous movie. <clears throat> oh, yeah. That, um, 
you know, like Days of Thunder, a lot of people might find irresistible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it has its charms in a, on a non-think sort in a non-think sort of way. Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to separate the nostalgia from the the, qual- the the critical merits of the film from its actual nostalgia. It's hard for me to uh, divorce those two because I came up age when Flashdance was all over the place, and it just was, you know, it, it was it was there in the yeah. culture. So uh, you know, well. The Blues Brothers has been issued in 4K, and uh, I did not get a review copy of this, but I'm told that it looks pretty stunning in 4K. It has both cuts of the film, the original theatrical version, and then the longer version that they discovered in the late 90s that was first issued on DVD. It's about 20 minutes longer, I think. Um, uh, No, 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 I take it back. It's about 10 minutes longer. And it has some interesting additions to the film. It shows how they... They actually get the how they fuel up their car. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> and uh, how it gets its power source or whatever, where it gets its power from or whatever. And uh, that's there's you know there's a few other uh, bits of mayhem and, and stuff. That's you know I don't think I've ever seen that movie all the way. Wow, really? Yeah, that's one of those. There's a couple of movies like that where I tell that <laughs> to people and they're like, "You've never what? What?" <laughs> well, I've got a few too, so don't feel bad. Like I have to revoke my movie geek card for not watching. Yeah. You know, I've watched Continental Divide in 1941, but I haven't seen The Blues Brother. Uh, <laughs> uh, but have you seen Neighbors? That's the other. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Okay, well, there you go. Yep. Uh, what's What's the one with? Uh... I've even seen uh, Boyfriends or old, oh, yeah. old Boyfriends, whatever old that movie. Old Boyfriends, yeah. yeah. Going south. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm. Yeah, uh, I like the Blues Brothers. I do. Um. <laughs> leave, it, leave it to Jack Nicholson, who who makes a movie that's a, a reference to Cunnilingus, whose title is a reference to that. It's funny. <laughs> and he's always, like, darting. Actually, that's amazing, because Pauline Kael's review of Going South actually mentions that. Because his tongue is always darting in that movie. Yeah. And he make, she made a mention to cut the Cunnilingus in her review of Going South. And the editor was like, oh, Pauline, do you really have to use that word? And uh, eventually I think she won out. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yep, I didn't think of that. But Watch, the, watch that new documentary on her. Wherever you can find it, I think in June it'll be up, you know, on like Amazon and everywhere else. The the what she said, the art of Pauline Kale, very good, very good. I want to see that so bad. I really do. I'm I'm so so anticipating that. Yeah. So, uh, Danger Diabolique is a release from Shout Factory. That's uh, the 1968 film directed by Mario Bava and starring John Philip Law. And this is interesting because most Mario, Mario Bava films are horror films, and this one is a crime thriller mm-hmm. uh, with John Philip Law as the title character, Diabolique, who is a super thief. And anyway, he um, he has a heist that he's planned, but then he uh, gets to tangling with some underworld figures, and you can imagine what happens then. But uh, yeah, it's a crime thriller, which is a kind of a change of pace for uh, Mario Bava. Mario Bava, so, the father of Jalo. 
<laughs> yeah, he pretty much is given credit he, for it. I, I think he is, yeah. I watched a Jalo movie um, the other day. I mean, I love, I've always loved this movie, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great movie. Give, give me 10 seconds. I'm going to get some orange juice. Mm-hmm. Get yourself something to drink if you want. Okay. Thanks, dude. Mm, high pulp orange juice. There you go. Oh, nothing better. I like to chew my liquids. <laughs> oh, goodness. I, I was... Uh... I was actually just watching the. Uh, I finally got around to watching that Crisis in Six Scenes, that Woody Allen thing, and uh, there was a joke about uh, their orange juice had artificial pulp in it or something like that, and uh, it was actually I can't remember the context, but it was pretty funny. I was laughing at this. <laughs> now is Hannah Montana uh, actually in that? Is she she my, is. Okay. She is. Yes, yeah, she plays a. Um, she plays one of these radicals who's going around. Uh, you know, she's against the Vietnam War, so she's bombing voting, uh, uh, political polling place, uh, um, just bombing police stations and things like that. You know, it's that sort hmm. of thing. So, uh, or anything, a- anything anti-establishment. Uh, Woody, but they, Allen's anyway. a, Woody Allen's a big fan of Hannah Montana. Uh, <laughs> he really is. He said oh, really? he, he never missed an episode. Yeah. His his, uh, his kids must have. Uh, must have been turned him on to that, I would assume. Oh, I think he just got turned on to it all on his own. <laughs> oh well, it <laughs> could be, could be. It's you know, it's actually it got terrible reviews, and I watched the first two episodes, and uh, they were actually pretty good. I thought they were pretty funny. I thought a lot of the jokes landed, and uh, you know, I enjoyed it so far. There's four more episodes to go, but um, mm. they're really easy to digest. They're only about twenty minutes apiece, so. Uh, Good stuff. Anyway, dude. Well, we'll carry on here. Uh, the Evil of Frankenstein is a Scream Factory release from 1964. This is one of those Hammer. When Hammer was uh, going through the Universal Studios monster catalog and doing their own takes on them, uh, they'd done previously done Dracula and Curse of the Werewolf, which was released last month in a new collector's edition by Scream Factory with a, lo- with a boatload of new extras. And um, so they did The Evil of Frankenstein. That was um, three years later. Hmm. And um, this is Peter Cushing, of course. And uh, there's a whole slew of new extras there for this one. So anyway, uh, Warner Archive has issued Selena from 1997. Um, Gregory Nava's take on the, um, the famous singer who was cut down by an assassin, Selena. Yeah, the big breakout for J-Lo. Mm-hmm, yep, absolutely. You know, that was her big uh, launching pad, I guess you would say. And then it was on to Anaconda, and then the sky was the limit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, how I love Anaconda. <laughs> well, it has its charms. So, look, another keynote release is Lonely Are the Brave, starring Jenna Rollins, Kirk Douglas, and Walter Matthau. Mm. 1962 and directed by David Miller and written by the formerly blacklisted Dalton Trumbo, whom Kirk Douglas had resurrected his – was instrumental in resurrecting his career, of course. Yeah, by this. actually crediting him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you mentioned somebody that's in that movie. 
Lonely Are the Brave, General Rollins, Kirk Douglas, and Walter Matthau. Matthau, um, yeah. Was Matthau ever young? He's I one know, of, right? <laughs> he's one of those guys. I mean, one of my favorite movies is the that uh, Nicholas Ray movie, Bigger Than Life. Mm-hmm. And he plays James Mason's friend in that. And this was, what was it, late 50s, this yeah. movie? And, uh, <laughs> and he still looks just like the Walter Matthau we all know. <laughs> you know? I know. I recently saw him in uh, last month, uh, Paramount put out uh, King Creole. And I uh, I got a review copy of that, and I, I'd never seen that. And he plays the mob boss that's threatening Elvis <laughs> in the movie. And uh, he, he exactly what you're saying. I was amazed. I was like, this is 1958, and he doesn't look a. Uh, it looks exactly the People same. People looked older. I don't know. The, the men looked more. I don't. Did, did, did men look generally older back then? Like if you see high school graduation photos in an old yearbook from the 50s, it almost looks like they looked a little older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. They did. But Walter Matthau looked like George Burns <laughs> in, his gra- <laughs> in his graduation photo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, this is uh, television, I guess I should say, but it's worth mentioning. The Pink Panther cartoon collection has been issued by Kino yet again. Kino at it again. 1964 to 1980, and these uh, were, I think they were ABC television but this is the complete collection, all 805 minutes of it. And uh, every one of the Pink Panther cartoons uh, that were made during those years. I think these were, uh, I want to say Frizz Freeling, the uh, the animator from the Warner Brothers cartoons. These, I think he did all these. But anyway, uh, another Criterion release is Dance Girl Dance from 1940. And this stars Lucille Ball and Maureen O'Hara. A ballet dancer and a burlesque queen compete for a wealthy suitor. And this is co-directed by Dorothy Arzner and Roy Del Ruth. Lucille Ball so. played a, a ballet dancer in another movie. Uh, she was like in Russia or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I can't remember the name of that movie. I don't know that one, actually. I have to say that's a... <sighs> Okay, go on. As soon as as soon as I find the name of this movie, I'll I'll tell you. Okay. I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Kino again, uh, and in uh, cooperation with Scorpion releasing is putting out the Chuck Norris David Carradine starrer Lone Wolf McQuaid from 1983. Oh, good. I've been waiting. <laughs> Steve Carver is the director on this one, and. Um, it does have an interesting cast. Like I said, Chuck Norris, David Carradine, Barbara Carrera, Leon Isaac Kennedy, and L.Q. Jones. So, uh, you know, if you're a fan of 80s uh, Chuck Norris action, well, Lone Wolf McQuaid is your film. Yeah. I almost watched that Silent Rage the other night where he's battling that indestructible robot oh, yeah. guy or whatever it That's is. That's not too bad. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's okay of its type. I've seen a lot worse, yeah. So The Woman from 2011. That's a, uh Arrow release. Um, this is one I really wasn't familiar with. Directed by Lucy uh, – or sorry, Lucky McKee and – 
And uh, it's about a successful country lawyer capturing and attempting to civilize the last remaining member of a violent clan that has roamed the Northeast Coast for decades. So The Woman from 2011. That's a, like I said, Arrow video release. And we have also uh, on the same day, I think this was uh, May 19th, I believe it was. Lord. 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 No, no, no. Oh, okay, the Lucille Ball movie? Lucille Ball movie, yeah. I'm not for sure. She There's some dancer subplot in that movie. It's a Douglas Sirk movie. I think she plays a ballet dancer. Okay, we, we settled that. Okay, go, go on. I'm okay. sorry. Interesting. 1947 so is what it is. Yeah? I did not know that. Well, um, so you were talking about pre-code films earlier. We have Frank Capra, one of his first films. This may be his first film. I'm not sure. American Madness from 1932. This was a pre-code film. Um, is it about reefer? <laughs> <laughs> The, the reefer stars Walter Houston and Pat O'Brien and it uh, takes place in the obviously in the 30s the depression era the board of directors Thomas Dixon's bank wants uh, they want Dixon to merge with New York trust and resign he refuses and his bank is then robbed of a hundred thousand dollars the suspect being an ex-convict whom he hired and appointed chief teller so uh, it's this has always been – I'm aware of this one being one of the early Frank Capra films. I've always wanted to see it, but uh, been kind of hard to find. Mm. Sony has released it as a Blu-ray. Um, it's one of those uh, order by you – know, they press it when you order it. Mm. It's not mass pressing. If you, you purchase it, then they press it and send it out. So that's kind of the way it goes. Um, but don't let that make you feel pressed to order it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you're a uh, Frank Capra completist, I guess. But uh, the 1963 film Sunday in New York, starring Jane Fonda, Rod Taylor, Cliff Robertson, and Robert Culp, Fonda mm. portraying a virginal miss who runs off from her fiance to the swinging pad of her brother, and then into the arms of a guy she meets on the Fifth Avenue bus. The swinging pad. I mean, uh, gosh, that language. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Wow, the '60s lingo. Hey, come back to my swigged pad. Mm -hmm. Wow. Sunday in New York. I, I think that's one of her uh, early films where she was trying to yeah. step out of dad's shadow and trying to find her own. It's interesting. Uh, I have been re-watching uh, watching a lot of the old What's My Line uh, game shows <laughs> that are on YouTube. And yeah. uh, what a great uh, game show that was. And uh, I, Jane Fonda was one of the mystery guests. You know, they would question her and try to figure out they were blindfolded and try to figure out who it was. Mm -hmm. um, and that took me down a whole rabbit hole because Dorothy uh, Kilgallen was one of the always one of the panelists on What's My Line for years. And uh, she was a journalist uh, of, of a very uh, dogged journalist at the time. And she was a great panelist because she had that inquisitive nature about her. Mm -hmm. So she could pretty much figure out what who anyone was and what their line of work was, which was the point of the game show. Anyway, she uh, started investigating the Kennedy assassination because she was very fond of Kennedy. And she was the only journalist, I believe, who interviewed Ruby in jail. And she 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 made it very clear that she to her friends that she had the scoop on what was really behind the JFK assassination and Ruby's role in that whole Oswald thing. Mm -hmm. And she was working on a piece 
to reveal it all when she was found dead uh, wow. under very mysterious circumstances. And so this guy just a few years ago wrote a book about her to kind of restore her legacy uh, that she uh, and, and, and argue that she paid the ultimate price for her reporting. But even in <laughs> even in the earliest days when Ru- Ruby assassinated Oswald and blah, blah, blah. She was very skeptical, and she printed that. She was like, how did Ruby get into this police station? And, I mean, she was the only one in the mainstream that mm-hmm. that really stuck it stuck those questions out there. Yeah. It's an interesting story. If anyone out there is interested in that kind of stuff, it's interesting avenues to explore there. Oh, yeah. that's uh, I, You know, the name has popped up on my radar, but I didn't um... – I didn't realize her her connection with all of that. So, yeah, that's seems like a lot of those uh, people connected died of quote unquote mysterious circumstances, didn't they? Mm. I wonder how that happens. Yeah, and it is truly. It's not only one of those Natalie Wood things that we we're talking about earlier. I mean, this this death scene for Dorothy uh, Kilgallen was was very strange. Very uncharacteristic and very staged looking. Mm-hmm. So it's a legitimate, mm. it raises legitimate questions. Ooh. Wow. A couple more Kino releases here I'll bring out uh, or mention. The Captive Heart, Michael Redgrave from 1946. The Long and the Short and the Tall, which stars Lawrence Harvey and Richard Todd and Richard Harris from 1961. And The Runner Stumbles, I think mm. the final film from Stanley Kramer from 1979, starring Dick Van Dyke. And uh, I don't think Stanley Kramer went out on too high of a note with that one. The but, Runner Stumbles, uh, does that have something to do with a nun? It does, okay. yes. Very good. <laughs> you. Yes. What, do, what do I win? All right. <laughs> you won the prize, a, a Cupid doll, or a year's supply of rice aroni or something. I don't know. It's... <laughs> Um, anyway, so how about Enemies, A Love Story from 1989, Paul Mazursky mm, film? Mm. Yeah, that you was know, a had, very, very acclaimed movie. So, yeah. Uh, Ron Silver and Angelica Houston, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Paul Pauline Kael's favorite film of its year, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd never seen it until the other night. I finally caught up with it this past week, and I must say it's pretty well done. Uh, if you're a fan of Paul Mazursky's work, and I am... Uh, for the most part, I mean, like anybody, he had a couple of couple of uh, questionable spots in his resume, like uh, uh, scenes from the mall is uh, one of those I would lump into that category. <laughs> but uh, you know, for the most part, he 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 was consistently good as a director, and this is this is a good, pretty good film. Uh, it's a Sony release. Um, one of those pressed-on-demand discs that we were speaking of earlier, and it's basically Ron Silver plays a Holocaust survivor who's uh, he's trying to put his life back together. Got a little PTSD going on, and he's re- he has remarried, and his wife has was killed in the Holocaust, and his children, and so he's trying to put together this new life. But having an affair with Lena Olin mm. in the film, and then he finds out that his uh, first wife, the one he thought was killed in the Holocaust, is actually alive and well. So now he's juggling three women instead of two. <laughs> and so it's it's interesting how this all I hate it when shakes that out. 
but but pretty well done. I would um I would definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, I was watching Alina Olin uh months ago. She mm-hmm. very early Lena Olin, it was a Bergman film that took place on a stage. And mm. it was uh just uh it was like a stage play, a filmed adaptation of like I believe it was a stage play. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but it was a very young Lena Olin. Hmm. That is interesting. It's a two-hander, too. I didn't realize she... Yeah. Hmm. Not, not, you know... It was a two-character piece. It's a, you know, Lena Olin's a very sexy woman. I don't want to use the term two-hander and, and it'd be misinterpreted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, uh, the 1986 film Rad is being issued on... Oh, yeah. Yeah. 4K. They're putting this out on 4K. It's uh, one of Vinegar Syndrome's first 4K titles. They're getting into the 4K game. And uh, uh, of all the titles that they would be... (laughs) They chose Rad. (laughs) Yeah, they chose Rad. That's the BMX movie. You know, like the bike? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I... uh... I got a no- I'm sure as you did too. I got a notice for that a couple of months ago. They were offering talent from the movie, and I was almost about to reach out to you and say and, and ask you if you'd seen any of the movie and you'd be interested in talking to them. But I have not seen Rad. I remember when it uh, when it came out, but I have not seen it. So I have to I have to have to be honest about that. But. Um, Anyway, it's interesting that they chose that title to, to be their launching pad, one of the launching pad titles for uh, their 4K. Who knows? Uh, I think they've done, they did one other one, too. I think it was Tammy and the Dinosaur or something like that. That was their other 4K title, but those are the only two they've... Wow. <laughs> uh, I did catch uh, Brian Dennehy's final film, Driveways, um, which has been issued on disc. I wanted to mention that. It's a newer film. I know we normally talk about the catalog titles, but it's a, a nice send-off for Brian Dennehy. Um, just, it's basically a real gentle film about this woman who's going through her. She is a single mom with her, her son who just doesn't quite fit in with any of the kids his own age, and they wind up taking a trip uh, out to go through her sister's belongings because they're going to sell off the house. Her sister's recently passed away and Brian Denny plays the neighbor who the little boy befriends because he doesn't fit in anywhere else, but he finds out that he does fit in and forms a friendship with this widower played by Brian Denny, who's a Korean War veteran. And they develop a gentle, nice, little sweet friendship. And um, the movie is just, uh, like I said, just real... um, Real, real sweet, real gentle. Uh, just kind of, it's real short, eighty minutes, I think it was, but uh, pretty, um, pretty well done. So driveways. If you're a fan of Brian Dennehy's work, and I think most of us were, it's mm. a good. The, fi- the, the final shot of him is a is about as great of a cinematic send off for him as we could hope for. It's just perfect, yeah. perfectly encapsulates his career. So I watched um, a movie that he was in. Um... That was made in 2013 called The Challenger Disaster. It was the first movie that the Science Channel financed. And it's uh, I mean, it's about when the Challenger exploded and the investigation that followed. And mm-hmm. uh, he plays this uh, military bureaucrat who tries to kind of stonewall a meaningful investigation of why it happened. 
And uh, William Hurt is this uh, world-renowned physicist who is, was the main the main investigator who really spoke up and uh, got to the bottom of, of what occurred that caused the Challenger to explode. And uh, it's a good it's a good little movie actually because of William Hurt. And uh, he's such a curious actor, but I think the reason why he was cast in the movie is because um, he's uh, he's one of those actors who, you know, they're they're thinkers. They're the thinker actors. Uh, you can tell that the, the million thoughts are going through their head even mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're not saying anything. And so he's perfect for this movie. But they the and I, the original title for the movie was Challenger which I thought was perfect, and then they changed it to the Challenger disaster, I guess to make it more obvious what it was about. But Challenger was great because because it spoke to the, the shuttle that, that exploded, but it also spoke to the lead character in William Hurt, who challenged the status quo and the bureaucracy to try to get down to the truth. It's, mm-hmm. worth, it's worth seeing. Very curious. I think I remember when that uh, aired. I think I, I think I do... But I didn't. I didn't um, have have not seen it. Um, not to be confused, I guess, with that made-for-TV movie called no. Challenger that had Karen Allen in it, I believe, as the school teacher. So yeah. Well, we'll move on to May 26th, the last Tuesday of the month, and Shout Factory is getting into the 4K game as well, and their first title on 4K is The Deer Hunter. Mm. Issuing. That's their first foray, uh, dipping their toes into the 4K waters. Well, this, that makes a lot more sense than rad. I think so, too. I mean, after all, it did win Best Picture of the Year. So. Rad uh, won Best Picture of the Year? Uh, far from it. <laughs> the Deer Hunter did, though, as we all know. And, of course, the final film for John Cazale. Mm. And, you know... Uh, Three friends volunteer to serve in Vietnam. What can you, and they don't see the horrors that await them before and uh, during and after, I guess you would say. Uh, you know, of course, De Niro and would John you, Would you have been in the Deer Hunter or the Coming Home Camp that year? Probably the Coming Home Camp, <laughs> I have to admit. Yeah. I mean, well, back then, probably the Deer Hunter Camp, but now the Coming Home Camp. Let's put it that way. Um, it's funny how a few decades will change your opinion about things. Yeah. But yeah, I have a. I don't know. With the Deer Hunter, I have an interesting relationship with it. I've always felt that it's over long and it's it's overlinked. Just really, I heard somebody say online when this title was announced, they said, "Well, this is a one hour's worth of entertainment." Uh, squeezed inside of a three-hour film or something like that, and I have to agree. That's about what I would say about it. It's just about one hour of, of a good movie squeezed into a, a three-hour film that just does not need that kind of running time, and I think it hurts the film. Uh, that whole first hour especially is just, for me, torturous with all the wedding stuff, and mm. uh, I know they're trying to introduce you to the characters, and I, I know what he's trying to do, but it, for me, and I know I'm probably in the minority on this, but it just doesn't work. It just, to me, is torturous. I just want them to, you know, 20 minutes of that of that would have been fine. That would have been ex- excessive, but an hour of that is yeah, just... Yeah, I wonder if he saw The Godfather and said, oh, that's a great setup with the with the wedding and everybody's together and celebratory and... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit of that would have been nice. I like the transition between that 
and then it just plops you right into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't spend time to get you acclimated to that. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the third act, which is all about the journey home. Um, I admire its ambitions. I do, too. More than its execution. Yeah, I, that's a great summation. That's that's perfect. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I have – I mean, it's it's a beautiful movie to look at. I mean, the Vilma Sigmund cinematography, of course. and uh, But, you know, it's just um, – I, I don't know why it was such a surprise for, you know, when when he failed so miserably with his next film and everybody was like, oh, it's so overlong. And it's like, well, what did you expect? I mean, The Deer Hunter was <laughs> – it wasn't exactly the shortest film ever made, yeah. and it was a little indulgent in my – overindulgent in my opinion. So uh, See, I did, I, I, I did finally watch last year. I think I watched all of Heaven's Gate for the first time. Uh-huh, yeah. And, uh, man, there's a lot to admire in that movie. I mean, oh yeah, it's sure. So so gorgeous at the times. Yeah, I mean he knew how to uh, you know to, to to set up a shot and he could get the technical stuff. He he could nail that stuff, but the the storytelling sometimes just suffers. I think because of his tendency to bloat. It, yeah, it's a delicate thing because I I do think ego is an important trait in the best directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet when it runs amok, and at the same time. The whole overindulgence argument, I mean, I understand intellectually what that is, what that argument mm-hmm. is. But at the same time, there's a part of me that says, you know, a lot of times that's what I love about some of these quote-unquote failed films. That yeah. The, that the director just slathered every single thing they <laughs> they had on screen and wouldn't, wouldn't compromise with it. <laughs> yeah. You gotta admire that part, that aspect of it. You're right, but uh, anyway, it's um, it's it, you know, The Deer Hunter is an interesting film, but just I don't think it's quite the classic that some people would like to to claim that it is. So anyway, but we'll move along. Um, Escape from L.A. from 1996. That was John Carpenter's many years after the original attempt to sequelize Escape from New York, which is of course, a beloved classic, and I don't know. Uh, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. What What can you say about it? I'm I'm just not sure. But um, it's it's no escape from New York. Let's just put it that way, and <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, so we have 4K releases from Blue Underground with Zombie and Maniac. And by yeah. the way, Escape from LA is a, a Shout Factory release. I just wanted to mention that. But yeah, Zombie and Maniac, uh, both being issued by in 4K by Blue Underground. Yeah. Is that the difference that Maniac's now in 4K? Because they had that like three disc yes. edition of that not long ago. Yeah, that, that's the difference. It's a 4K upgrade. So yeah, yeah I, wa- I want to see that movie as cleanly as possible. <laughs> uh, I want it to look pristine, like it's happening right there in my apartment. Well, now you have your opportunity. Let's do some 3D conversion on that shit. Come on. (laughs) What's better, uh, seeing Joe Spinell freaking out or a flying shark and zombie? I don't know which one is... uh, If only that that movie were shot in 100,000 frames a second, that would have been just... (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah... So on and so forth, but yeah, they have been reissued for anybody who's a uh, 
who's a fan. Uh, Solid Metal Nightmares, the films of Shinya Tsukamoto, which mm. includes Tetsuo, the Iron Man, Tetsuo 2, The Adventures of Dinchu Kozo, Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, Snake of Jane, a Snake of June, sorry, Vital, Haze, Kotoko. Uh, those are all being issued by Arrow Video in a box set. Very impressive you got through that. Ah, uh, yes. I'm surprised. You know, as many times as I've butchered other words on the show, I, uh, <laughs> I'm i surprised I did make it through that one. Um, yeah, I interviewed this guy. It's a lo- lovely guy uh, about, uh-huh. uh, for the segment I'm working on for the series. He lives in Poland, so I woke up like at 7 in the morning to interview him. And um, the first order of business was to figure out how to pronounce his name because it's like a 16-syllable last name. And uh, so I asked him, and he was like, well, it's a typical Polish pronunciation. And so I waited, and I was like, which is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's great. Um, well, uh, Criterion has issued a collection of uh, Martin Scorsese's short films, the mm. Scorsese Shorts Collection, which includes um, basically all of the ones that he did from 1963 to 78. <laughs> and these are I just thought it would be it would be hysterical if they were actually shorts <laughs> from his closet. <laughs> that would be funny. Um what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? It's just it's not just you, Murray. The Big Shave, American Boy and Italian American, which is wow. of course a documentary about his parents. And uh these are all interesting. Uh, I've seen some of them, not all of them, but um it's nice to have them all in one place, and it's a new conversation between Scorsese and film critic Farhan Smith Neem, mm. and a new discussion among filmmakers Ari Aster and Josh and Benny Safdie, wow. and a public radio interview. Yeah, I know. That's pretty good uh, pedigree there, and a uh, public radio interview from 1970 with Scorsese as well, and a booklet. Mm. So, if you want to see Scorsese's early shorts... Yeah, I know the... <laughs> Short films. Uh, I know the Safdie brothers, they're crazy about Hoffman. I remember years ago interviewing them and talking to them about Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And they're on the Criterion channel. They're talking about various movies that they love. One of the movies is not... Uh, they talked to me about Straight Time. But I think they talked to Criterion about Hero. Mm. And so the Stephen Frears from 92. So I revisited that, and I still don't like it. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they they really they really connected with Hoffman, and I'm sure if Uncut Gems was made, you know, 30, 40 years earlier, they Hoffman would have been their first guy. Yeah, I'm like you. I saw Hero in a theater when it, uh, the opening weekend, and I really disliked it. I have to admit, so I haven't returned to it since. So yeah, not my cup of tea. Just fell completely flat. So Paul Dano, the actor turned director, uh, his 2018 film Wildlife has been issued by Criterion. Mm. Uh, They've done a a new um, special release here with all kinds of extra features and all that stuff. So uh, there you go. Um, Ator, The Fighting Eagle, is uh, a Dark Force Entertainment release from 1982. Can't say I'm really familiar with that title, but... Anyway, it's it's out there. Uh, another Criterion release, Husbands from 1970. Oh, yep, yep, yep. I'm yeah. on it. 
1970. You would be. Yes, I was going <laughs> to say, that's our year. Cassavetes. Uh, yeah. Uh, the gang, and you've the seen it, all, I take it. <clears throat> the gang's all there, Cassavetes and Falk and Gazzara. And, uh-huh. Yeah, I got to I gotta pick that up again because I started preparing this series last just after last summer. And one of the first people I went to was Ginny uh, Runnaker, who is the female in Husbands. Mm-hmm. And she was anxious to talk, but she lives in France or something. And we, we couldn't figure out does the her, her um, what do you call the Wi-Fi? She doesn't have great reception out there where oh, she lives. Okay. Yeah. And so she was like, should we do it on Skype? Should we do it? Blah, blah, blah. And we just never figured it out. So I got to go back to her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And the conversations I have had for the series about husbands and Cassavetes in general are, are about, uh, you know, you think of uh, so masculine. His his movies of that ilk are a kind of study in masculinity before, you know, this is before Jenna Rollins becomes his main muse mm-hmm. with pictures like Woman Under the Influence and uh, Opening Night and, you know, Gloria, all of that. So uh, there's a lot of conversation revolving around that, the male-female dynamic in his films. Yeah, I, uh, I I have to say I've never seen Husbands. It's one of his films I I, uh, I never did get around to. Uh, but I want to and hope to really soon. So it's this reminds me, seeing some of these titles reminds me, hey, I need to, uh, need to make that a priority and step it up. So... Um, before the Devil Knows You're Dead is being issued in a special edition by – it's one of the Shout Select titles. Good. Uh, I love this movie. A great um, final film for Sidney Lumet. Uh, just grabs you from the beginning and never lets go. Uh, fantastic performances all around. Yeah. Albert, The late Albert Finney, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, Ethan Hawke and – uh, of course, Marissa Tomei, just fantastic, great, great film. Um, yeah, I remember interviewing the, the screenwriter of that, Kelly Masterson. Mm, and I said, did you go to the nice. set? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I went to the set. And he said, Sidney had no idea who I was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, geez. I was the guy that wrote the script, yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I just, uh, that, that movie is just uh, amazing. The vitality of that that film has for somebody that was in his early 80s at that time it looks as if it was made by somebody 50 years younger you could tell it wasn't necessarily the material which he which he found melodramatic Uh, he thought something like running empty was a melodrama as well Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much the material it was just you could tell he got a big buzz off the actors oh yeah lumet loved actors so when he's in the company of an actor like philip seymour hoffman and that damn breakdown scene he has in his car after he confronts mm. his father. Oh, yeah. It's one of Hoffman's greatest moments, I think. Oh, totally agree. It's it's uh, That that scene made the hair stand up on my on the back of my neck. It was so good. I mean, I'm not kidding. Yeah. He's, you know, uh, it's just a, an amazing scene when he's, you know, you can tell he's pent up all this anger from his father for decades and decades. He's really hated his father and resented him. And then his father just, you know... Uh, with one passage of dialogue, basically eradicates all of the anger, and he wants to hang on to that anger, and he's he's yeah, angry because he's, that he can't he's hang defined on himself to, by it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he wants to hold, and he can't hold on to that anger anymore because his father just said, "I'm sorry." <laughs> mm. It's amazing. It's mm-hmm. amazing. God. 
yeah, amazing. So, A Midnight Clear from 1992. Um, that's is a that shout. Keith, Keith Gordon? Um, directed? Yes, or? it is. Yes, Peter Berg and Kevin Dillon and Ethan Hawke again. Um, yeah, Ooh. he wrote and directed Keith Gordon Dead. Um, takes place in 1944 France, and uh, yeah, it's another one of the Shout Select titles hmm. that uh, that they're issuing with new special features. And In Search of Dracula is a new Kino release. I think that features a commentary by our uh, uh, one of our returning guests, Lee Gambon, who does a lot of these sorts of things. Um, it's a documentary hosted by Christopher Lee about uh, searching for the real Dracula. And from 1975, also a couple of Paramount titles. Paramount's getting into the pressed-by-demand game as well, huh. and they're releasing Atlantic City from 1980. Good. Susan Louis, Sarandon. Louis, Louis Mal. Louis Mal, yes. Uh, and of course, uh, great late uh, Burt Lancaster, late in his career. Great performance from him there. And Susan Sarandon, uh, also Funeral in Berlin from Michael <laughs> Caine, starring Michael Caine. I so. can tell you. One of the interv- I'm sorry, I just ate a spoonful, oh, no, no, no. spoonful of peanut butter. One of the um, guests that I uh, had on the show was a, a Burt Lancaster biographer, and she was telling me about the cover of her book in the first issue of the first edition, and uh, it was of a naked Burt Lancaster, completely naked, from the swimmer. <laughs> it was his backside, walking towards a pool from the swimmer. And he, was, she was like, "This is beautiful image, and I'll send it to you." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, great. I look forward to seeing it. I'll, I'll, I'll frame it and put it on my wall. And when I invite people over, they'll be like, why the hell do you have a naked guy hanging on your?'" But um, so she sent it to me, and it was quite a provocative shot. But um, she said, "Here you go. You can frame it now." <laughs> oh that's great um well what about this one um the 1981 film all night long has been issued by kino lorber and boy did we ever think we'd see a teaming of gene hackman and barbara streisand but yet we did oh yeah in 1981 john claude who, who, who was responsible for that Jean-Claude Tremont, and written by, is the director, I mean, and W.D. Richter is the writer who hmm. also previously scripted uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake in 78. But uh, you also have Diane Ladd and Dennis Quaid, Kevin Dobson, and William Daniels. So, um, yeah. Wow. Have you ever seen them? I have not. I mean, the description sounds great. Uh, it says executive George Dupler loses his temper and is demoted to the night manager at a 24-hour drugstore. I can just see it already. So <laughs> sounds perfect for Gene Hackman. So. <laughs> yeah, I just can't imagine that Gene Hackman would respond to big personalities like Streisand on set. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, uh, but I, I think the the making uh, the film about the making of All Night Long would be as interesting yeah. as. Night long. Like um, I, I wonder if Dan Aykroyd bugged the shit out of him in Loose Cannons. Uh, I could see that happening. <laughs> I could definitely see hey, that just, happening. Just shut up a second, dude, will you? What? Yeah. Another Warner Archive title is The Reluctant Debutante from 1958. That's uh, Rex Harrison and Kay Kendall and Sandra D. Starring in that, and uh, another Kino release is The Chicken Chronicles from 1977. That's uh, one of those 
comedies. It was the year before Animal House, but it's in that similar vein. Uh, has Phil Silvers and Steve Gutenberg. What a team, right? Uh, and Ed, <laughs> Phil Silvers and Steve Gutenberg and Ed Lauder. Wow. And this is uh, it's about a high school student who will go to any lengths to impress a pretty cheerleader and lose his virginity while attempting to juggle his job at a chicken joint and trying not to get thrown out of Beverly Hills High School. I've always wanted to see this movie. It's notoriously hard to find. So this may be a blind buy for me. It didn't get a review copy. So, uh, uh, you know, its critical merits have, have not been – it's never been well-reviewed, but it just – I don't know the time it came out. I remember in the late 70s seeing advertisements for it, and it's just been so hard to find, and I'm just curious. Hmm. Um, a couple more Paramount titles that are being issued by um, On Demand are On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever. That's another Barbara Streisand, wow. of course. Also with Yves Bar- Montand. Yves Montand. Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson has a little role in that, doesn't he? I think so, yeah. Uh, that's directed by Vincent Minnelli and uh, also featuring the always great Simon Oakland. And yes, Jack Nicholson does have a small part along with Bob Newhart. I remember Evans telling a story about that because, I mean, Nicholson, outside of the Corman films, he was an unknown quantity. Mm-hmm. And he went to Evans and said, listen, Bob, I, I need a part of this movie. And, and Evans said, okay, I'll pay you this much a week. And Nicholson was like, I got to kid to support and all this kind of stuff could you raise it up to this much and Evans was like man the balls on this guy (laughs) (laughs) oh that's awesome that's awesome well just a couple more titles here in fact uh, yeah two more titles we have and that'll be it we have uh, Angel's Ashes is another Paramount title Alan Parker 1999 yes Alan Parker Um, that's another pressed on demand disc from Paramount and uh, we'll end it up here with a 1979 film. Uh, this is a Kino Lorber release. Uh, a Man, a Woman, and a Bank. This is directed by Noel What's that Black. About? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, what what would that be about? Uh, Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Paul Mazursky again, except he's acting this time and not directing. So um, anyway – um, so I think that pretty well takes care of the month of May. Uh, I'm happy that they're still able to get, get discs manufactured and get them um, out there, you know. Yeah. So, uh, with Good all times. this going on. Good times. What what blessings in, on the Blu-ray front for the month of May? <laughs> yeah, it's quite a... a Quite a quite a variety there, as yes. it usually is. All the decades are represented in there. Got the 30s, got some noir of the 50s, got some, you know, some Streisand and Hackmans of the 70s. It's all there. Yeah, and your Tom Cruise Tom Cruise trio. Don't oh, forget about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the 80s, Mr. 80s Tom Cruise. Wow. <laughs> got it all, man. Got it all. Mm. And just keep in mind, for every one of these titles that you buy, Adam gets a cut. So uh, <laughs> do what you can. Don't we wish. Don't we wish. That would be nice. Yeah. Well, luckily they are kind enough to send me some review product, and I'm able to look at these films at home. And I I am truly thankful to all the the distributors who uh, who support us and are kind enough to do this. And I, can, I do thank them uh, as often as I can. I don't take this for granted. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, that's good. And we don't take you for granted, Adam. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's a, it's always a pleasure to do my duty. <laughs> do my Blu-ray duty. Do my duty. Touch that part of you You want me to 